Good morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning is Isaiah 66, the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. So if you have your Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can find our passage on pages 625 and 626 in the pew Bible. So Isaiah 66, we'll read the chapter together and then we'll pray. So if you wouldn't mind, please stand in honor of God's word and follow along as I read. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my namesake have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire. And his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury. And his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. 
Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fires shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, so we are going to finish Isaiah this morning. Um, Hard to believe. (laughs) I'm going to miss it. I don't know about any of you. Well, actually, I do know. One person said they were going to miss it. Um, So I've often felt this way in this book. This has been a real challenge and stretch for me as we've studied it. But particularly here in this final chapter, how do I do justice to the vision of the end? There's a lot of confusing things in this chapter, so we need to understand those. But there's also these glorious things that are really hard to do justice to. And so sometimes I think I feel like a tone-deaf person trying to sing Les Mes, you know, to 100 people. Um, Maybe it'd be better that we just read it and close in prayer. Um, No, God helping us, we're going to dive in here. And we're actually going to begin by allowing the perspective of Isaiah, let's pull out a little bit, to give us some perspective on the heels of our recent election. Uh Uh-oh. What do we make of this election on this side of, you know, it all being done? So thankfully it's over. It's a lot of things coming to roost in America, and we won't take time to explore some of those things, but I want to share a few things that have been burdening me this week, Um, and I don't know if this is characterizing the church in America, how much, but I'm mainly just concerned about whether or not it characterizes our church. First, this is no time for celebration or triumphalism. Relief, maybe that the circus is over, and I certainly don't pretend that there would be more relief had the result been different, but relief, I think, only in a limited sense. So there are some very important platform issues that, if handled well, could be great blessings. We should be thankful for that. I'm not minimizing that in the least. But folks, I believe as the church of Jesus Christ, we should mourn 
No matter what the outcome for this election cycle, I believe that part of the proper response is mourning. We should be sobered. We, can, we should be concerned. And we should cry out to God to have mercy on us. So, like I said, yes, some party platform issues are in line with biblical values. That's very important. But we just elected one of the most singularly unfit presidents in American history. And God opposes the proud. And God hates racism and sexism and immorality and lying and opportunism, and we could go on. So we ought to actually weep at the state of our country, not cheer at some of our liberties being preserved. Thankfulness? Yes. Cheering, celebration, triumphalism? No, I don't think so. And we, primarily a white suburban church, thankfully not solely a white suburban church, okay? We ought to quickly put ourselves in the shoes of our black and Mexican and refugee friends and brothers and sisters. And even if they share certain biblical values that align with some of the party platform, do you think that they're feeling particularly safe right now? Or represented? I can tell you from listening to them, they are not. And we oftentimes are only thinking of us rather than them. And we need to be thinking of them, loving our neighbors as ourselves. So let me just say this. Time for mourning, yes. Time for despair, no. And Isaiah gives us great orientation in moments like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, he was this great king under whom the nation of Israel had thrived. And he died, and Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. He wasn't pacing. He was seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and actually the hem of his robe filled the temple. That's how majestic and transcendent he is. And then, later on in Isaiah 40, it says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, all the stars, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. All that's going on right now that, that we've been just like, you know, it's been so much on the front burner and it, it can just lead to this roller coaster. Guess what? It's all going to be a footnote. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ can't be stopped by small, little, petty national decisions like this in the scope of human history. So we should be sobered and we should 
mourn, and we should pray. And we will, as we're commanded, we should honor and be subject to, we should be the best citizens as Christians. So we should mourn, but also we don't have to despair. And we need to keep seeking first the kingdom and know that it's going to come. Isaiah 66 paints that picture for us. So I, I don't say what I'm about to say as we head into Isaiah 66 in a flippant, joking manner. Okay, I just want you to think about the last few months or weeks or even this past week. And I don't want anybody to raise their, raise, raise their hands, okay? But how many of you have trembled at the thought of Hillary Clinton as our next president? I, I'm not joking, okay? And please, no, no need to raise hands. And then secondly, how many of you have trembled at the thought of Donald Trump as our president? Some of you might, I could, how many of you have trembled at the thought of either of them as our next president? Okay, maybe some good reasoning for that trembling, but here's the real question. How much trembling has the word of God elicited in your life this past week, month, year, decade? That's the most important question this morning. And that's the one we're going to consider in Isaiah 66. What does that even mean to do that, to tremble at God's word? So first point there in verses 1 to 2 of Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It's so easy to get caught up with all we need to do for God. We can be so focused on ourselves and our work that subtly God can kind of shrink in our estimation and our responsibilities and efforts are what loom really large in our lives. So as back in Isaiah's day, or after Isaiah's day, but what he's talking about here, as the exiles are heading back into their homeland, they were in exile in Babylon, they're going to be returned by Cyrus, and as the temple was in ruins because Babylon had just raised it to the ground and burned it, you can imagine them thinking, the temple is the place of his presence. It's a place where atonement is made and where we find favor with God. So what are we going to do? We've got this temple that we've got to rebuild. It's just totally overwhelming. Well, God breaks in here with, okay, time out. Where's the house you're going to build for me? I, Acts 17, I, lo I love this passage. In Acts 17, Paul's preaching in um, Athens, and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So again, remember Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. It's the mere hem of his robe that fills the temple. So the whole point is, 
you know what, you could build a temple that's like the, the eighth wonder of the world, surpassing all other wonders, and Yahweh would say, the earth is my mere footstool. I, I'm sorry, where did you build that house for me? We're never going to impress God with what we can do. Our righteousness, like it says in chapter 64, is like filthy rags. We could build a temple to the heavens, and when the last hammer is silenced, the Lord would say, oh, okay, where did you say it was again? I had my eye on Barry Steele. Sorry. I'm just not impressed. This is the one to whom I will look. So I don't know if you noticed that they built this new Mormon temple in Philly. Um, some of you may have taken a tour. Over 60,000 square feet. They spared no expense. So a former president of the Church of the Latter-day Saints said this, we must build more temples and we must build them more quickly. This is the season to build temples. He died uh, eight or nine years ago. They are needed, and we have the means to do so. The Lord will hold us accountable if we do not work with greater accomplishment than we are now doing. And if you try to find out why do they build temples and why do they spend so much money doing it, here's what you find on their website. When the gospel of Jesus Christ was restored in the early 1800s, the Lord again commanded his people to build temples. Uh, not in the Bible, but that was in the Doctrine and Covenants um, one of their books. The earliest temples of the restored church were built in Ohio, Illinois, and eventually Utah. Today, the church has over 150 operating temples around the world, regardless of the place or time period. Temples are the most sacred place on earth, a place where earth and heaven meet and where we feel close to our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. No, <laughs> that's not true. God is not like some rich man who's interested in all the decisions and potential of his palatial dream home and who overlooks the needy and humble person as he passes on the street to, you know, find, about, find out the update on how, how building is going. It's the opposite. Imagine an unspeakably wealthy king whose attendants are trying to tell him about the progress of his house and he's only interested in the salt of the earth citizens who engage with him on the way. He doesn't give a rip about the building being built. So Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So the heavens and earth are not big enough to contain him. And yet, because he's so merciful, he's so gracious, he sends his son to dwell with us, Emmanuel, God with us. He does so to die for us, dealing with our sins that separated us from him so that we could be reconciled to him. And then what does he do? He sends his spirit to dwell in us individually. We are his temple. And corporately as a church, we are his temple, not this building this is just a building. God dwells with his people in his church. We are a spiritual temple built with spiritual stones, people. Okay? So we are his temple. So we need to consider more closely what the second half of verse 2 means. And it's, noting, it's, it's worth noting that in the flow of Isaiah, it's kind of this uh, beginning of chapter 66 is actually the answer to some questions cries of Isaiah on behalf of the people. Flip back to 63.15. This is the cry of their hearts at the time. 
Isaiah, on behalf of the people, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? Please deliver us. Do something. Act. Help us. And then 64.9, flip ahead and see it there. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and, for, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. So the Lord answers here, and he says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So this is the one to whom I will look. What does that mean? It's a way of speaking about his gracious gaze falling on us. Okay, it's like the blessing of Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. Lift up, the, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. So he looks favorably to you to be gracious to you and give you his peace. Or Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. So this is the one to whom I will look to give grace, to pour out my favor. Or as it said elsewhere in the Bible, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He who is humble and contrite trembles at my word. So God pours out his favor on the humble and the contrite. Being contrite is its brokenness that comes from genuine remorse and penitence. So if you know you're guilty, you're affected by it, you've owned your guilt, you're not hiding, you're not running from it, you are contrite before God. So these words for humble and contrite, you could also translate them poor in spirit and stricken in spirit or stricken in conscience. So that's what gets God's attention. That disposition draws down God's favor because he gives grace to the humble. We shouldn't be surprised. What did Jesus say at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin and the brokenness in the world around them, for they shall be comforted. Or if you want another picture of what this trembling at his word looks like, think of that parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Remember the Pharisee stands up in the temple and he says, I thank you, my God, that I'm not like other men, this tax collector over here. I do this and this and this. And he is trembling, beating his breast, God have mercy on me, a sinner, and who went away justified the tax collector, not the Pharisee. This is the one to whom I will look with my gracious, merciful favor. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. So the opposite of humble, contrite, trembling at God's word is to be prideful, self-sufficient, and indifferent to our sin. That kind of disposition is treating the word of God, the God of the word also, with this kind of casual indifference and, or mere kind of recreational interest. So it's treating this precious, holy, authoritative word with flippancy. It's the one in, in, in one ear out the other sort of relationship with the word. 
It's also the fingers in the ears relationship with the word where we don't like certain parts and we kind of pick and choose as if we're the judge rather than God. So instead of that, we should be people that are clued into the reality, into reality, capital R, the reality that's so clear in the book of Isaiah, summarized in chapter 6. Um, Russell brought our attention to it earlier. So God the King, the Holy One, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when you encounter him, you see in that light your uncleanness, your unholiness. We are undone before him. And then, mercifully, what does God do for Isaiah? He provides atonement from the altar. And then what does Isaiah do in response to the atonement? Here I am. (laughs) Send me. So that is where trembling at his word begins. With an encounter with the living God, this great, transcendent, awesome, holy God, and then in an acknowledgement of our sin and need for a Savior. And then we live in humble and even desperate dependence on our Savior. So it's very appropriate to throw the fighter verse in right here. Who's with me? Okay, because it echoes these very themes. Ready to say it? I'll say it with you, Rick. Anybody else want to join us? Okay. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's reality. Now, what does it mean to tremble at his word? I think we need to drill in a little bit more. And this is really where we're going to spend the lion's share on this point this morning. I know it's a big chapter. There's a lot of confusing things in there, but we can't overturn every rock. What does it mean to tremble at his word? I think this is incredibly practical. And and the question is, like the beginning, how much trembling has the word of God elicited in your life in the last week or month or year? Does this resonate with your experience? It needs to. You should want this. I mean, if this is the one to whom God looks, like, sign me up. Okay, humble, contrite. So, Let me just give a couple of examples. So let's say you're battling for purity. The lust battle is particularly hard, and you are going to go fight fire with fire, and so you go to Proverbs 5 to 9, and here's what you read in chapter 7. Come, this is the seductress speaking. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. How many people that you know, what did it feel like when they actually stepped over that line and they committed adultery. Doesn't that all at once just kind of send shivers up your spine? Does me. Like, what would it feel like in that moment? Suddenly, like, just, oh, oh no, oh, no. So if you read that word and you know your heart, 
you tremble at this word, that doesn't mean, you know, you're waiting for God to throw lightning bolts at you. It's, oh God, guard my heart from temptation. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. I don't want to ever go there. Don't let me go there. I know my heart is prone to wander. These temptations can be so strong. Help me fight. I think that's part of what Isaiah is pointing at here. So we could multiply examples. I think you should in your community group multiply examples. What about, so let's say the temptation is envy, jealousy to certain standards of living, and you want to be wealthier than you are. Let's just take another one, for instance. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, 1 Timothy 6. So if you are or if you want to be, you would tremble at this word and say, oh, Lord, help me not to have blind spots here. Like, help me to be content with you. Learn the secret of contentment. Keep your character free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Help me believe that. Do you see what I'm saying? So what's your issue? What's on the front burner? This is a healthy trembling. It's not not this cowering under a, a false vision of a vengeful God that just can't wait for you to step out of line so you can, he can blast you with a lightning bolt. It's, I love you, and I know that everything that calls my heart away is a lie, and I don't want to go there, and I'm so prone. So help me. Take care, Hebrews 3 says, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you know that dynamic, then you know that oh, if, I, if it all depends on my will, my will sometimes feels like a leaf in a, snow, in a snowstorm, in a windstorm. So I'm so glad that you are keeping me and I can cling to you. So we could multiply examples, like I said, you should, in community groups. It could be bitterness, willing, unwillingness to forgive. The Bible says stuff about that. Anger, biting, cutting attitudes. So here's an illustration maybe to drive this home. No pun intended. Um, driving. Imagine you're driving late at night. You're getting sleepy, and you start to drift off, and the rumble strips wake you up, and you are trembling. Because you could imagine, like, what if... Oh, my word, thank So, are you angry at those rumble strips? Like, that's all I need in my life. More anxiety. This, like, I'm all keyed up now. No, you're blessing those rumble strips because they kept you out of the ditch. That's where trembling at his word is not tied to some, you know, vengeful deity that can't wait for you to step out of line. It's this loving God that gives us guardrails because he loves us, and if we know how prone we are to wander when we read things that we need, we're humble and contrite, we tremble at his word, and we say, help, I need your grace and mercy to keep me. This is the one to whom I will look. (laughs) It's really encouraging. So we need this word, Bethel. It's where we need to live. This is what we need to cultivate. We ought to be a countercultural people. 
I mean, we are crazy people here, right? We believe that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. We believe that the meek will inherit the earth. We believe God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And you know what? If you feel just dead and cold this morning, this is actually the path to revival. Back in 5715, it's the same kind of thought. The high and holy one who inhabits eternity, he also dwells with the lowly and contrite of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. So sweet, these promises that God gives grace to the humble. So here's where we need to stay, low before the Lord, dependent on the Lord. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from him, we can do nothing. So here is the only way to eventually and eternally be on the right side of history. All else will be shown to be on the wrong side. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so let's look at some of that comfort in verses 5 to 14. Comfort for the trembling. Look at verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. See how that's connected to verse 2? Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my namesake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. It's a sarcastic taunt. But it is they who shall be put to shame. Listen to Ray Ortland comment on this. A great summary. Isaiah is looking at God's people in this present age of mixture and conflict. What does he see? Two groups of people, true worshipers and their quote-unquote brothers rejecting them. It happens in liberal churches. It happens in conservative churches. Religious people who settle for a form of godliness but are threatened by its power, always, those people always resist God. They may build beautiful temples, but the humble and contrite are not welcome because longing for God to come down and change everything isn't what religious people want. So again and again in churches, something like this can be heard. You're always saying you want to glorify and enjoy God. Let us help you. Let's see how joyful you are as we show you to the door. Why doesn't everyone welcome joy? Because religion is a mechanism for reinforcing the status quo, while joy is the power of the future, claiming and transforming all that we are. And for some church people, well, they just never figured on getting that much of God. He and all who love him embarrass them. So, may we not be in that company, but rather be the people who tremble at God's word, humble and contrite. So standing with God in his word is not going to be popular. Sometimes even in the church, it's not going to be popular. Sometimes you'll be shamed or marginalized, mocked, reviled. But listen, well done, good and faithful servant <laughs> is going to make up for any mocking or marginalization that takes place in this life. God will judge his enemies, the enemies of his people. Look at verse 6. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple. The sound of the Lord rendering recompense, repayment to his enemies. But he will bless his people. Look at verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. So picture Zion or the church of God or the people of God as a mother, like Church as a mother, that's probably the best way for us to look at this. Verse 8, who has heard 
such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? Example, how did the church go from zero to 3,000 in one day at Pentecost? You see? Like when God's doing the work, crazy, miraculous things can happen like this. For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb? If I start something, I'm going to bring it to completion. If you remember earlier on in the book of Isaiah, the people of God were were taking matters into their own hands, trying to, to establish their own safety and security, and it always was futile. And the imagery was like stillbirth. Like, or, or even coming to the point of birth and not being able to give birth, using this metaphor. And here God says, I, I can do it in such a way where I can make a nation in a day, <laughs> like without any, even any labor pains. So, verse 10, rejoice. Here's this comfort for the trembling. Rejoice with Jerusalem, the city of God. There's the city of man and the city of God. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her and joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. So in the midst of this valley of tears and all the suffering, when we come to Jesus, we can begin to taste this comfort And then when he returns, we will fully enter into all of this. But how about this imagery? Just think about this imagery. Maybe go watch a mother of young children after the service, or I'm sure you've seen this happening. You've got this wailing child. And then what happens? Here comes mom, grabs the child, and it just calms down. Little baby calms down. Hungry child, mother feeds it, calm. Agitated child, mother comforts it, you know, bouncing the baby on her knee. That's exactly the picture here, God doing that with us. God takes on these maternal imagery, you know, characteristics and says, just like a good mama will comfort her child, that's what I'm going to do for you. All your mourning and crying and pain and suffering, guess what? I'm just going to comfort you forever. There's not going to be any more. I'm going to wipe every, every tear. This is the comfort that's offered to those who tremble. So it's foretaste form now, and then it'll be fullness when Jesus returns. But it's this beautiful imagery of how God's taking care of us and will ultimately take care of us forever. But for those who refuse to humble themselves before God, look at the end of verse 14, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies, which is why they should tremble in a different sense. Look first at verse 3. You were probably wondering what in the world this, this was all about. 
They should tremble whether their rebellion to God is religious or irreligious. Look at the religious form here. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. What? Well, when you aren't humble and contrite and you keep going through your religious motions, like think about the fact that they you know, did sacrifices and there was clean and unclean sacrifices and so forth. Imagine an Israelite who is not humble and contrite, is not trembling at God's word, but he's still going through the motions. It's the equivalent of pagan idolatry, offering a dog or offering pig's blood. David knew this. O oh Lord, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. But these people, again, whether it's religious or irreligious, hardness of heart, they've chosen their own ways. Look at the, at the end of verse 3. And their soul delights in their abominations, and I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, here's the issue, when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they didn't listen. So this is the opposite of humility and trembling at God's word. This is the problem. They didn't listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Now skip down to verse 15. And it's the same issue here. Again, the judgment of God on those who reject his word. And here, it looks like pagan worship. So verse 17, those who sanctify and purify themselves go into the gardens. That's the places of pagan worship. Following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination of mice. So again, it's pagan idolatry that's being judged here. They're rejecting the true God. They're rejecting his word. And then the harshest statement is in verse 24, the last statement of the chapter and of this whole book. And they shall go out, the people of God who have been redeemed, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Ugh. We shouldn't be ashamed of this verse. Jesus quotes it in Mark 9:48. We should tremble at the truth about hell, not question or downplay or sideline it. That's part of the word before which we tremble. So listen again to uh, Ray Ortland on hell here in his commentary on Isaiah. All you have to do to go to hell is stay on your present course of self-salvation. The outcome of your rejection of God will be God's eternal rejection of you because rejecting his free salvation is the sin of all sins. It is rejecting heaven. And how can people who reject heaven end up there? God knows when he's not welcome and he knows what to do about it. Hell says not merely a temporary no, but an eternal no to sin. Hell is especially for those who think they are too good to be helped by God. Hell receives those who imagine themselves good. Jesus receives those who know themselves sinners. So again, Book of Isaiah, big picture in light of who God is, high, exalted King of kings, Lord of lords, in light of our sinfulness. We all like sheep have gone astray. Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. In light of this great atonement 
that's been made by the perfect sacrifice, Jesus, the lamb slain in our place, in light of the unspeakable comfort that is to come, and in light of the unspeakable punishment that is to come. Last point, we, we must gather as many as possible to join us in worshiping the one true king until we finally and forever all gather to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. So last point, verses 18 to 23. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. What's that sign? We've actually hit this a few times if you've been with us. It's like a standard. It's like a a banner that's raised up and people are drawn to it. Well, ultimately, it's the miraculous birth of Jesus and this counterintuitive death on the cross in our place where life comes through death and mighty victory through what appeared to be a weak defeat. And so as people are drawn to the Savior, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. As Jesus is lifted up, then what ends up happening is we say, here I am, send me, just like Isaiah. So look at how verse 19 goes on. And from them I will send survivors, whom shall I send, who will go? To the nations, and these names that are represented are just representative of the area around, like, and all over the place, even to the ends of the earth. To the nations that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they, my witnesses, my servants, they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. It's worship evangelism and loving people by sharing the gospel with them is is worship, worship of God. It's a priestly ministry where we are mediating the grace grace and truth of God to other people because we want them to be reconciled to God. We, We don't, we can't atone for their sins on our own, but we can tell them about the atoning work of Jesus for their sins. And then verse 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I, shall rem- that, I, that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. This is Revelation 21, 22, and actually Tyler's going to be preaching on Revelation 21 next week as a fitting follow-up. So one day, all things are going to be made new. And God's children from every tongue and tribe and people and nation will all gather together and worship our great God forever and ever. That's the purpose of our mission. That's actually the completion of our mission. This picture right here of worshiping God together from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, that's the completion of our mission. But until then, we've got lots of work to do. So let's get to work, but let's get to work humble and contrite, depending on God and his mighty word. And let's do this work singing as we go. Worship is actually the power for the work, and it's the purpose and the final goal of the work. So it's appropriate that we close by singing the song, Sing to the King, and you'll see how... Worship is the power for this work, and it is the purpose and final goal of this work. So pray with me.
Oh God, we thank you that because of Jesus, you, you give grace to the humble. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand that you may lift us up in due time.